as we get into God's word together. We've been going really verse by verse through the book of Romans since the beginning of this year, a calendar year. And um, the first 11 chapters of Romans are all about what we believe and who we are in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 12, uh, through the end of the book, it's not about what we believe, but how we are to behave. It's not about what we are in Christ, but how we're to act now that we're in Christ. And so in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul talks about our relationship with the secular government. So let's read the passage and then we'll talk about it. So chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is God's word for us. So in Romans 12, uh, Paul has been talking about the believer's relationship with the church, uh, with his friends, and even with his enemies. Uh, and then it seems like he switches gears. If you're not familiar at all with Romans or with the New Testament, you think, why all of a sudden is he talking about government here? But it's not random. Uh, Paul has been talking about overcoming evil with good just in chapter 12. What better way to apply that than to the Roman government that they were living under? because they were, it was evil. There are a lot of things that were evil about it. So why would Paul write Romans 13? Well, persecution was growing. It was getting worse. Uh, but at the time Paul wrote, Christians were already under suspicion for a couple of reasons. They had these private meetings, uh, namely worship services. And they were not worshiping the emperor as the ultimate king, as the Lord. And Paul knew that it was important to be seen for them, for the Christians in Rome, to be seen as good citizens, while at the same time not compromising their faith. So what was the Roman government like? Well, on their best days, they were unfriendly. 
And on their worst days, they could take your life. So this was not a government to mess with. Uh, Paul begins in verse one with these words, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So this is an unqualified statement. It doesn't qualify who was governing and it doesn't qualify what subjection means. Uh, Imagine being a Christian in Rome under this oppressive government and hearing the Apostle Paul say basically, hey, by the way, this nation, this country, this system that you live in that's so antagonistic to your faith, God established it. And they're probably going, what are you talking about? You know, and, and Paul is saying you need to view the Roman government as a government that was established by God. Ultimately, and we need to see our government as a government that's established by God. There's a lot of parallels between what Paul was going through in the first century and what we are going through today with our government. Um, That doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that our government does. There's lots of things we don't agree with, and we're going to talk about that. But the Roman believers just living under that a government had to be fearful. They, they had to feel intimidated by that. Um, some of you are rightly applying this to your boss at work. And, and you're thinking, you know, Kenny, if you think my boss at work is from God, you need to come to my work with me because he is not from God or she is not from God. But God does establish all of the authorities over us. Uh, to make us Christ-like in the end. He's doing this for our good. This is the Apostle Peter. Paul's not out on a limb here by himself. The Apostle Peter says the exact same thing. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the talk of foolish people. So that's what God's will is. So both Paul and Peter make it clear, and this is on your outline, that our responsibility toward governing authorities is to submit to them. The only people who really need to be afraid of the government are those who do something wrong. Uh, If you wanna live without fear, then do what's good. Some of you will probably remember the name Richard Halverson. He was, Uh, some years ago, the chaplain for the Senate. Uh, Before that, he had been uh, the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., a very godly, um, Christ-like man. And um, I was privileged, actually, to have some interaction with him one time. And man, he's just, he's a very godly man. He wrote this, it's on your outline. To be sure... Men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state just as man, because of sin, has abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. 
But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. As a matter of fact, it is because of this very sin that there must be human government to maintain order in history until the final and ultimate rule of Jesus Christ is established. Human government is better than anarchy and the Christian must recognize the divine right of the state. So this is what Paul is saying in verse two. Look at verse two. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So it is God who has placed the power where it is, whether it's over our government right here or whether it was over Nero, who was a horrible, terrible ruler in the first century. Paul is saying there is no authority except from God. So Paul begins where we ought to begin with the sovereignty of God. I don't know anybody that I've ever talked to who doesn't believe in God's sovereignty in in their lives. And you've got this on your outline. Power has only one source, God. No matter how well or how poorly that power is used. You know, there's a great account of Jesus in John chapter 19 when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, the one who was demanding uh, ultimately his execution. And at one point, Pilate asked Jesus a question, and Jesus gave no answer. And Pilate says to Jesus, I have the power to crucify you. And Jesus says to Pilate, you would have no power unless it was given to you by God. And the only reason you have power is because my father gave you the power. Wow. You wanna take up the argument of what we're saying here? Take it up with Jesus. Because Jesus believed that this wicked man, Pontius Pilate, was from God. And that he had been given his power from God. Generally speaking, and this again is on your outline, When we respect and obey the government, it allows us to fear God and not people. Jesus did not fear Pilate, although he could have. He could have cowered in front of him and said, oh, you're going to crucify me? Then, okay, I'll give you whatever you want. No, that's not at all the way Jesus responded. Our government, and I think most governments around the world, have gone way beyond their divine mandate of what God has given them to do. But here are the things that that the scripture says that governments should do. So that's number one on your outline, the responsibilities of those who govern. So government is called, first of all, to encourage good. That's the letter A under number one. Verse three, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from, the, from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. So if you want the government to stay out of your life, uh, pay your taxes, uh, obey the speed limit, don't run red lights, uh, stay out of your neighbor's business, respect their, don't covet, we now have a command about that, don't covet your neighbor's things. Uh, Don't invade their privacy. Don't rob banks. Don't do anything illegal. 
I know that's what you were thinking. I'm going to rob a bank. So no, no, no. The government can't make us good. Only God can make us good. But the government can encourage good. The second responsibility that God has given the government, the letter B, is to restrain evil. Laws don't make people good or kind. Only God can make us good and kind. Look at verse 4. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Just think of traffic laws alone. What would happen if just for one day uh, there were no traffic laws? Every stop sign disappeared, every stoplight disappeared, every speed limit sign disappeared for one day. There'd be utter chaos. Uh, we can't even handle it when one red light goes out and, and we're all freaking out. What's the, who goes next? What do we do? And it's, it, it's, it, it's chaos. And so you know, think about even when the laws, when we do have laws, what happens when you see a police car? Well, you check your speedometer, you tap on the brakes maybe a little bit. You think, I don't want to be caught doing something bad. And so, again, they're there to restrain evil. Um, I was talking one time to a, one of our uh, sheriff, or one of our police captains, and, and he said on Friday night, they, they park a couple police vehicles downtown, even though there are no police there. Because they know that just having the vehicle there will deter people from doing bad things. And so... Uh, that's not for you to see a vehicle and wonder if it's manned or not. And just Anyway, I, I knew of a, a place where there was uh, people always speeding and they just parked a police car there. It was empty. But they actually put a dummy inside of the car and holding up what looked like a speed gun. Uh, <clears throat> it deters. It, it restrains evil. And so the sword, you have this on your outline, the sword represents the power to punish to make war, and to protect. I'm not sure what a good job they're doing in protection, but that's what they're given to do. The governments are given the responsibility directly from God to protect us. The next thing the verses deal with is the responsibility of those who are governed. That's you and me. As Christian citizens, we have four obligations according to these verses. Number one is to submit, letter A. Submit, verses five and six. Therefore, <clears throat> it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes for the governing, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. We're to obey laws, we're to pay taxes, that's the example that he uses, but it's also just to have a clear conscience. Um, and here's the caveat. The government is never to have absolute rule in our lives. And uh, Paul uses this example of taxes appropriately because taxes in the first century were anything but just. You might feel that our taxes are unjust. Man, the first century. You know, we were in Rome recently uh, with some of you all in the tour in the steps of the Apostle Paul. And you see all that was built in Rome that was built by paying all these people, paying unjust taxes, including the Colosseum. 
Um, and, and the Roman Colosseum was built in the first century from all these taxes. There was a poll tax. It was basically a tax for just you living, uh, being alive. You had to pay a tax if you were age 14 to 65, if you were uh, a male, and if you were female, age 12 to 65. You had to pay a tax just to be alive. On top of that, there was a, a, an income tax. Uh, there were taxes for using roads and, and harbors. There were uh, import taxes. There were ground taxes. Uh, anybody transporting uh, wheat would have to pay either one-tenth of the value of the wheat or give them one-tenth of their wheat. If they were transporting wine, they had to give one-fifth of their wine to the government or the proceeds of one-fifth of their wine to the government. Uh, and there was a fish tax on how many nets you owned if you were a fisherman and how many fish you caught. It, it, was, it was an absolutely oppressive taxation. But this is the, this is the, the situation where, that Paul was writing to. He was saying, pay your taxes. Taxes support the running of a government even if we don't like a lot of what's going on in the government. And it was into this world that Jesus was born and that Paul is writing. You know, the people came, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted Jesus to get rid of all these unjust things in the government. Jesus did not do that. He never called for a political or a social revolution. Uh, you know, there were some enemies of Jesus that hated each other, but they hated Jesus more, and that brought them together. Uh, the Pharisees hated the Romans. The, the Herodians hated the Pharisees. Uh, but, but they were all against Jesus. And there's this very insightful interaction in Matthew chapter 22 that they, where they asked Jesus about paying taxes. And, and, and they wanted to trap Jesus. And, and Jesus, is, if he said yes to paying taxes, then he's on the most wanted list of the zealots. And if he said no to paying taxes, then he'd be considered a revolutionary and the Roman government would be after him. So what does Jesus say about paying taxes? Matthew 22 says this. Tell us then, these are the Herodians and the Pharisees speaking to Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is on this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And it says, I love verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed. Because they knew they could trap him. They thought they could trap him. They didn't trap him. And what Jesus is implying here is you have God's image stamped on you, and so you live for him. That's what God says to you this morning. You have God's image stamped on you. You need to live for him. That means that you never obey Caesar in a way that makes you disobey God. And so you have this on your outline because while Caesar has his image on the coin, God has his image on you. 
And so you give yourself to God. And so the first thing we do is we submit. The second thing we do is we honor, which is greater than submission. Give to everyone what you owe them. Verse seven, if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We're told to respect our government leaders even if we don't like everything they do because we recognize that in the position they hold, they are God's servants. And that position deserves respect. And maybe you think, what if those officials or those, the people in office have policies or trying to pass laws that are unbiblical or even harmful? Well, I can't imagine that Paul or Peter felt anything differently than that. But Paul did not sign any of his letters, at least in I, that I have seen, uh, hashtag not my Caesar. So if there's ever a time as believers that we're obligated to go against civil authority, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? And the answer is yes, there are times that we are supposed to oppose our government. And here's the rule, you've got it on your outline. We submit to the government up to the point when obeying the government means disobeying God. If the government says to violate a clear command of God, we obey God, period. And there are a ton of biblical examples of this. I'll give you a few. In Exodus chapter one, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh was in charge and he ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill all of the newborn babies. They feared God and they, re, and they knew that was wrong and they refused to do what Pharaoh had commanded. And that's how Moses stayed alive, right? You know the story, you should go back and read Exodus one if you don't. That's civil disobedience. So there's a place for civil disobedience. Here's another example. Joshua chapter two. Rahab was directly commanded by the king of Jericho to produce the Israelite spies who had entered the city to get intelligence on uh, an upcoming battle. And instead, she lied to them, said she did not know where they were, and she let them down. They were hiding in her house with a rope that she had so they could escape. That was civil disobedience. And Rahab is mentioned in Hebrews 11 as a woman of faith for being civilly disobedient. When Nebuchadnezzar ordered Daniel and his friends to eat all of the delicacies of, his, of, of the king's table, Daniel was this kosher Jewish boy. He knew it was, uh, that he should not eat that, and he did not, or he would defile himself. So he didn't. He was civilly disobedient. That same king, Nebuchadnezzar, commanded a golden image to be built for everyone to worship and fall down to and, and, and worship. There were three of Hebrew young men on his staff, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they refused to do it, and they were thrown into the fire in Daniel chapter three. They would not serve the golden image. And what, what happened? They said, I see a fourth man walking with them in that fire. Uh, it looks like the son of man, and uh, they, were, they were delivered from that fire but they were civilly disobedient. Daniel chapter six, again, Daniel was praying, giving thanks to God when that had been forbidden by Nebuchadnezzar who looked up to and respected Daniel. But he had to feed Daniel to the lions because Daniel was being civilly disobedient 
and praying to God. The Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem made a law that you could not speak in the name of Jesus. Peter and John went out and they preached the gospel all the same in Acts chapter five. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. And in essence, they were saying, we would rather offend you, leaders, than offend God. And we'll take the consequences, whatever they are. And there are other well-known acts of civil disobedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Germany, saw the, how evil Hitler was and wanted to take him out and was arrested uh, in a plot to take out Hitler and died in a concentration camp. Uh, Wilbur, William Wilberforce in England uh, was civilly disobedient against laws of slavery so that those laws would be changed and so slavery would be ended in Great Britain. We're confronted with issues like this today. Whether it's same-sex marriage or whether it's abortion. And that's why, just to mention a couple, why we support silent voices. Because that's what they stand for. That's what they're all about is saving voices that can't speak for themselves. We speak for them. And there, we live in a society and, and when there's so many things that the society says okay and God says no, it's not okay. So we need to obey God. And so here's the rule. You've got it on your outline. A Christian is to be a good citizen until being a good citizen means you're a disobedient Christian. That's the rule. A coin has an image on it that represents uh, the fact that it's legal tender for us here. But God's image is stamped on us. And so we're made in the image of God. God wants you because you're made in his image. And God's call for us is to surrender our lives to him. That's what God's call is to you. He wants your life. Yeah, you pay your taxes. It's the same thing that, that, Jesus, that, 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 was said, uh, that Jesus said to them. Pay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And you give to God what belongs to him. And God's call to us is, is to be, live in submission to him because we are his special creation. So here's some principles that we can draw from the scriptures we looked at and others about civil disobedience. You've got it on your outline. We should never disobey a direct command of God to follow a law of the land. We should work within the laws as much as possible to change the laws that permit evil. And if a Christian disobeys a government law, he should accept that government's punishments to his act, for his actions. And Christians are certainly permitted to work to install new government leaders within the laws that have been established. So here we are. We're to submit, we're to honor, and third, letter C on your outline, we're to engage. <clears throat> so how do we engage? Well, the very fundamental way that we can engage is what Paul told Timothy to do, and that is to pray <clears throat> for those in leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 2, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he's specific, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we're to pray for government officials. You're to pray for your boss that you don't get along with. It is an unjust boss. You pray for them. 
and, and pray for, there's nothing that we can, if there's something that we can do to put people in those positions who will lead with justice and fairness, we should do everything we can to do that. And then one last responsibility, letter D on your outline, is adjust our expectations lower. The government's role is very limited. It keeps the peace to some extent. But I remember not that long ago, a reporter saying, look at these peaceful protests while while buildings were burning behind him. Not so peaceful a protest. So that happens. But you know, each of us in our hearts, we have this deep longing for, for justice. We have a deep longing in our hearts uh, for, 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 for peace. But the government can never bring that to us. Politics can be a great calling. It is like a calling to be in politics to try to bring about change. I know Christians who are there, but we move the world through the preaching of the gospel. That's how lives are changed. It's not by government. Someone said our salvation did not come to earth riding on the wings of Air Force One. Our salvation came cradled in a manger. And our truest party symbol is not a donkey or an elephant, but a lamb. That's our party symbol. We are citizens of heaven. We live in this corrupted earth. But our party symbol is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, political power and political privilege aren't necessary to do the work of the gospel. However, when there are Christians who are involved in in government, we should pray especially for them. They want to bring about changes that are good. Maybe some of you have examples of of people you know who are Christians in in government and who are trying to do something good. I have a friend from seminary that I went to seminary with for three years. His name was John... Hanford. And John, um, soon after graduating from seminary, uh, felt like God wanted him to go and work in politics. And so he got a job in an office of a senator from Indiana, Senator Luger. And what John decided he was going to do is find Christians who were being persecuted for their faith and then put political pressure on them to stop persecuting Christians. And so um, John, for example, heard from uh, another classmate of ours who was a missionary uh, in Egypt about some Coptic Christians who had been arrested for sharing their faith on the street. Technically, that's not against the law in Egypt, but because of the majority Muslim population, uh, they were arrested and put in jail. John said to our friend, you need to make sure that they don't have uh, any other rap sheet for doing other bad things, and they didn't. And so John wrote a letter uh, in Senator Luger's name and had 17 other senators sign it. And then uh, John had an in with the government in that his aunt is uh, Elizabeth Hanford Dole, who was a former senator from North Carolina, married to his, uh, John's uncle, Senator Bob Dole, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time. And so John called his uncle Bob up and said, I'd like to deliver this letter to President Clinton. And so uh, when the Senate Majority Leader calls, the president answers and said, come on over. And John went with his uncle Bob, and they presented this letter 
to uh, President Clinton, who was meeting the following day with President Mubarak from, from Egypt. And Senator, uh, President Clinton gave uh, that letter to President Mubarak, and the following day, those three men were let, out of prison, were let out of prison. So God does use people in government sometimes to do things that are, are awesome things. Uh, and and that was, that's just one example. But uh, when President Bush became president, he appointed uh, John to be the ambassador at large for religious freedom. And John then had a budget that he could do some things with. And he hired all these uh, former uh, staff people and former students with crew, with Campus Crusade for Christ at the time. And, uh, and he would hire those who were speaking, who especially spoke Arabic. And he would send them to uh, trials of Christians who were, uh, who, were, who were being persecuted for their faith in Muslim countries. I remember specifically sending somebody to watch a trial in Saudi Arabia. And what they had done was go against the law in, in sharing their faith. Uh, they knew they were going to go to prison. There was nothing we could do. But he said, I want an American citizen in there who can listen to the trial, and I want them to know that we're watching them. I want them to know that we think that what they're doing is wrong. And so we need to pray for the Christians that we know of in government. Uh, God's using them. Uh, I, I talked to John recently, and, and he and his wife now, they're, they're retired, but they're writing policy from a Christian perspective and giving it to Christians in government to try to pass legislation that is, is, is at its roots biblical. And so, again, we need to pray. Um, Paul and the earliest Christians did not have any political backing. They didn't have a friend like that in government helping them. And yet those weak believers saw the greatest expansion in the church that the world had ever seen. They weren't discouraged by all the oppressive government that was on top of them. So no matter who is in the White House, we can go on and we have to go on preaching the gospel. That's what our calling is. And so the call is to join Paul, to join the first century Christians in being ambassadors, uh, not for the, the, the elephant or the donkey, but for the Lamb of God. That's our calling. So Paul was concerned for the Christians in Rome because the political climate was turning against them. I think we could say the same thing for us. The first century Jewish policy was hands off the government, be as far away from the government and separate and distinct from them as you can be. So for Paul to, to write what he did in, in Romans 13 was a radical departure from where the Jewish thought was in the first century. So I think sadly we can say our government is following a lot of other governments around the world in becoming more hostile. Uh, not just indifferent, but hostile towards Christianity. And even seeing theism, if you will, in general as, as a threat to the common good. So not just Christianity, but Muslims as well but specifically against Christians. And Christians in a growing number of countries, including our own, are, are finding a connection with believers who lived in Rome during the first century that Paul was writing to. And our response <clears throat> should be, excuse me, 
to participate actively in public affairs and to let our positive influence, our Christ-like influence, open up doors for us to be able to preach the gospel and speak in times when, when we don't think we would. I just saw yesterday that in some world track championship, the, the, the women who got first, second, and third in the 400 meters, each one stood up and gave a testimony about Christ. I thought, wow, how cool is that? Um, but civil disobedience, we need to remember, was peacefully, will, will help peacefully correct official wrongs. And when government policy begins to abuse or victimize those who are helpless, like a baby in the womb, you know, you can see silent voices. Sharon's here this morning. Sharon, raise your hand. You can talk to Sharon about how you can be involved with silent voices. She doesn't have a table, but she's right there. Um, but we have to take peaceful action against that persecution. I think of the, the, even the campaign of civil disobedience in the 60s. There was a lot of civil disobedience, and uh, I don't even know if there was one shot ever fired. Rarely, but sometimes when governments behave badly, we need to take up an alternative uh, and take up arms and confront evil against them. And there is such a thing, I believe, as a just war. I'm not a pacifist, but I come from a family of pacifists. My mom, her whole side of, the whole side of her family are Mennonites. And so many of them, many of my cousins were conscientious objectors during the Vietnam War. They did not want to bear arms, but they worked gladly in veterans' hospitals and helped in other ways. Uh, so we have to respect that conscientious objection. Um, so the, the last thing, finally, just before we close, we need to take this to a personal level. And, and for you to think of, of whoever it is in authority that you're struggling with, whether it's government, whether it's at work, and, and you need to say, okay, ultimately, Lord, I realize that they're here from you. And that, that my, your goal in my life is Christ-likeness. Your goal is to make me like Jesus. And I know that you will use that as hard as it is for me uh, to, to, and I want to buck against that system. God wants to use it in your life to make you like him. And God will use whatever, wherever you're at in your life to prepare you what it, for what he has for you next. And so that's why we need to be submissive to the authorities that God has placed over us. A lot to think about here. So keep thinking. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a just and fair God. And we thank you for our government. As much as we may disagree with them, uh, our desire is to preach Jesus and to continue to be able to preach and teach and freely gather for worship. And we thank you that we can. We pray that we would be able to continue to do that. Will you give each of us, Father, a great zeal for the glory of Jesus, for the glory of the gospel, for your glory, and a great love for those who are lost, and great wisdom and courage to speak your truth and present the gospel in the public square. We know, Lord, that you will use the preaching of your word to draw people to yourself. And I trust that you've done that this morning. If there are people here this morning who don't know you, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would respond right now in faith to you. 
We love you, Father, and we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. My prayer for you is that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.